0: Welcome to the Independent News Hour, now a 40-minute hour. In the headlines today, Congress passes a $900 billion stimulus package with a little something for everyone. Economically struggling arts venues get a lifeline. And Mayor de Blasio vows to overhaul how protests are policed in New York City. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our latest news at independent.org. We also released our latest print edition earlier today. We'll be talking about that more shortly. We uh, we previously hosted the Monday edition of the WBAI Evening News for the past couple of years. And last month, we moved to this new time slot and are del- delighted to be here with you this evening. And I apologize for the technical difficulties we had a little while ago. It's great to be back on the air. In the news, Congress has passed a $900 billion stimulus package to help Americans reeling from the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic crisis it has brought about. The legislation includes a $600 payment to individuals making less than $75,000 per year, the maximum uh, total of $2,400 for a family of four, also provides supplemental unemployment insurance of $300 per month. For the next 11 weeks, the agreement also contains provisions related to student loans, rental assistance, and medical bills, and additional funding for public schools and mass transit, including $4 billion in emergency aid for the MTA. Progressives, led by Vermont Senator Bernard Sanders and Congresswoman Alexandria and New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, had called for payments of at least $1,200 per person per month but negotiators settled for a single $600 per person payment, which House Speaker Nancy Pelosi hailed as significant. Uh,
1: we also have in the legislation uh, d- direct payments, which were not in the Republican bill, to America's working families. I would like them b- b- bigger, but they are uh, significant.
0: The st- the stimulus package also includes $15 billion in federal relief for struggling arts venues that have not been able to host events since the onset of the pandemic. The independence Olivia Regio, who covers the independent music industry, said the money will be a boon for music venues here in New York and across the country.
2: Back in September and October, when I was doing most of my reporting on the issue, 90% of independent venues across the U.S. said that they'd have to permanently close their doors if they didn't receive aid soon. And when I spoke to Reverend Moose, the executive director of the National Independent Venue Association, he expressed that venue owners were frustrated over how the government mandated shutdowns, but then on the other hand also refused to help venue owners stay afloat. He also said that the PPP didn't meet venue owners needs because most of their expenses weren't payroll related and fell more in the rent and overhead areas. So this stimulus means that the government is acknowledging the burden of shutdowns on venues like these and also doing their part to help mitigate harm so that we can ultimately emerge from the pandemic with an indie music scene that's still vibrant and not bought out by larger corporate entities.
0: Here in New York, Mayor Bill de Blasio has vowed to implement changes in how the NYPD handles protests after the Department of Investigations released a blistering 111-page report on Friday criticizing how the police department handled the George Floyd protests of late May and June that rocked the city. Unmentioned in the DOI report is that smaller protests highlighting an array of left-wing causes have continued at a rapid clip since June and have faced an overbearing police reaction, according to Amber Gagarian, who wrote the cover article for the new issue of The Independent that hit the streets of New York City earlier today. The title of her cover story is Black Lives Matter Backlash, the NYPD's War on Protesters Intensifies.
2: So there's the DOI investigation and other suits and reports that claim that the NYPD largely mishandled the George Floyd protests. But those allegations all address a time period ending about at the end of June. And since then, not only protests against police brutality, but sort of a variety of leftist protests of dissent have been smaller, but still very frequent. And they've often been met with a pretty intense protest suppression tactics on the part of the nypd and that's one of the things we're trying to bring light to
0: we will hear more from amba gagarian after this short break
1: in my heart you're leaving maybe i'm grieving. but if you want to leave take good care hope you have a lot of nice things to wear and then a lot of nice things wear.
0: That was uh, Wild World by Cat Stevens, dedicated to Wes Markersfeld from a big fan of the show. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. Our latest uh, print edition hit the streets earlier today across New York City. You can also uh, find our latest news at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. So, uh, as I was saying, the December-January double issue of The Independent hit the streets today. Our cover story looks at the NYPD's hyper-aggressive policing of protests since the George Floyd demonstrations subs- subsided at the end of June. Most of these protests are small, and the, and the police violence and int- intimidation they endure takes place away from the eye of the media. Uh, these protests cover a variety of causes, including Black Lives Matter, immigrant rights, Uh, tenant evictions, and and many others. So uh, these protests, as I I was saying, often go overlooked in the media, but not at the Independent. The Independent's Amber Gagarin has covered dozens of protests since this summer and experienced firsthand the overwhelming presence of the NYPD, at even the smallest of protests. So she used that as a jumping-off point for her cover article titled Black Lives Matter Backlash. The NYPD's war on protesters intensifies. Amba, um, thank you for joining us on the show this evening.
2: Hi, great to be here.
0: Sure thing. Uh, great, great work on your on your article. So, just for starters, uh, can you give us a sense of what it's like to be at a protest these days uh, here in New York City, uh, e- even when it's a, a fairly uh, small affair?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I'm speaking generally here, and, of course, each protest is, is different. But, um, uh, you know, as a little bit of backstory for those who don't know, there were these huge protests up until June, and then um, that sort of – I mean, New York always has, you know, protests, but that sort of created a lot of momentum, and new organizers stepped up. And at least until the end of September, there was still a daily protest, and now we're still seeing weekly protests, Um for Black liberation and for Black Lives Matter, but as you mentioned, also for other reasons. And so these protests are more like 50 to 200 people in the streets, and uh, the majority of those that I've been covering have been met with a really intimidating level of police, um, you know, presence at, at, at the least, and and usually, you know, some sort of violence. Uh, for example, the other day there was a, a tenant um, rights protest at the Brooklyn Housing Court that was led by a coalition of, of tenants organizations uh, tenants rights organizations and uh, we were kettled on the sidewalk um, and some of the protesters were also kettled inside of the building uh, we were beaten up on the sidewalk and there you know one of our photographers got she, she's, she's about 60 years old she got Hit with her knee, uh, she got a baton hit into her knee. Sorry, and then they, the group that was inside the building, got stuck inside the building even though they were trying to leave, which is really common in this sort of kettling thing that we're talking about, right? So kettling is when the cops basically come in on you on all sides and tell you that you have to leave the protest. is over, but you can't leave, and then so you get arrested or beat up. So they kettle people on the sidewalk and inside of the building. And one of the people who got kettled and arrested was an eight-year-old woman, um, who was then put in a van you know, without any windows. And that's just one example of sure. how things are going now. Um, and it's that's pretty common, unfortunately.
0: Right. And we were here at the uh, independent office uh, in downtown Brooklyn uh, last month uh, when we saw about 25 uh, police officers just down the street. And they were gathered around a, a tiny group of uh, uh, trade unionists from 32BJ um, who were protesting outside of the offices of uh, city councilman, Stephen Levin, uh, mm-hmm. urging him to su- support some legislation they favored. And I couldn't think of a group that's, you know, less likely to cause trouble. And, and there, there were more police there than there were members of, of that union.
2: Right. And not only are they not dangerous, but they this group called the PD ahead of time, NYPD ahead of time and said, look, we're going to have a protest. Do we need a permit? You know, there's going to be 20, 30 of us. And they said, no, that's fine. You don't need a permit. You're going to be on the sidewalk, whatever. So they show up, and, you know, yeah, then there's more cops. There's like 20 protesters, 25 cops, a white shirt, a bunch of arrest vans, And uh, I walked up to the community affairs officer because he was the only one sort of talking to the protesters. And I said, what's going on? Why are there so many of you? And he was like, I was wondering the same thing myself, but that's just our new that's just our new status quo. That's how we approach protesting now. So, you know, that was um, in October. And, you know, everyone's talking about how they mishandled all the protests in in June. But the, the DOI report actually mentions that since, you know, there's been calls about the police brutality against protesters, that, that they've started a new sort of training since then um, to try and better handle protests. But if that's what, if that's the outcome of this training... You know that's yeah,
0: it gonna sounds gonna like it. uh they, they just want to completely smother them and, and um yeah. and one other group that's often at at the center of a lot of trouble at these protests uh, the, the the strategic response group uh, this uh pretty heavily armored uh contingent of uh of cops that show up show up at different protests can you talk about them for a second
2: yeah absolutely so the- st- strategic response group is a group of um Bike cops, who you've seen in photos or at protests as you've been at, and they're the guys who wear sort of these turtle suits, um, which got upgraded sometime this summer, and uh, who, who shove their bikes into your chest and scream "Move back!" Um, and they are have sort of dual purposes, which is they're an anti-terrorism group, but uh, they're also uh, like a, a protest policing group, essentially. So, you know, they have the resources to uh, act as anti-terrorism group, and they're
0: funneling those into quelling protests. Yeah, this sounds like maybe part of the root of the problem here, that, that they would have a, a, a squad of, of police that identify as being, you know, anti-terrorist uh, uh, fighters. At the same time, they're, they're uh, covering uh, or um, policing uh, peaceful protesters. So they seem to be really confused about their their mission here. Um but just to sort of broaden out for a moment, we we'll, we we have a couple more minutes here. Uh, mm-hmm. What's happening now is is not this is not the first time we've seen this. And so you talked to some people um including a a lawyer who's been suing the police for these sort of of violations of, of people's rights going all the way back to the 2004 rnc protests as well as occupy wall street
2: yeah and i am going to hearken back really quickly to the last question because when i was talking to that lawyer um he was saying how um you know they that that anti you know terrorism tactics and uh anti-protest tactics have been conflated quite a bit in the eyes of the city and and the NYPD. And I think that's just a really important vantage point for us to look from, is that that's how the city sees protesters. And, you know, that's how it's not a new thing. Um, You know, at the RNC protest in 2004, uh, protesters were grouped onto um, an oily dock, an oily pier, that um, the NYPD had rented from... uh, the the MTA and they were kept there for like a day, like covered in like asbestos and oil, all the stuff, and then brought to um, jail and kept there. Some of them for three days. So that was in 2004. You know, in 2011, we had occupy. Oh, sorry. And after 2000, after the RNC protest, there were these critical mass bike rides, which some of our listeners might know about or have participated in that kind of came out of the organizing that was, you know, uh, laid out during the RNC protest, and there were these huge bike rides around the city, and the the cops had a very, very similar approach to what they have now, which is arrest and beat up these people to the point where they don't want to go back out, and it was working then, and I know this is bleak, but unfortunately it's working now, Um, and we saw a similar situation with Occupy.
0: Right. We're going to have to wrap up here in about 30 seconds. But your, your sense is that this um, these police tactics are are having an impact on, on the people who have been coming out to protest.
2: They are. And they are integral to sort of the founding of the police. You know, since the, the first day since the Gilded Age, they were involved in union busting since throughout the 20th century. They busted a lot of protests and it's happening now. And I think it's something we really need to look at as a city, um, because it's beyond just bad cops. It's about the whole system that supports the cops.
0: Okay, thank you, uh, Amba Gagarian, for sharing your your, uh, thoughts and analysis, and I encourage everybody who can do so to pick up a copy of the new issue, of The Independent, that has Amba's uh, cover story on it.
2: Thank you, John, and uh, John helped with that article too, so uh, thanks to everybody, and thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you. Um, But you really took the lead in in the reporting of all that. I was happy to just uh, help out a little bit with getting it across the finish line. All righty. So we'll be back uh, uh, after a short break. We no. That was Amar Shonar Bangla, composed by Tagore, the song that Bangladesh's freedom fighters adopted as their national anthem during the 1971 Bangladeshi liberation struggle. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find us online at independent.org, and you can also find our new print edition that hit the streets earlier today in our red and white news boxes across the city. Turning to our Second and final segment this evening, Uh, we will be talking in just a moment with one of the exciting young candidates running for office here in New York City right now. In 2016, Mumita Ahmed was a millennial Pied Piper managing Facebook pages full of iconic memes that drew hundreds of thousands of voters to Bernie Sanders. In 2018, she worked on Alexandria Ocasio's uh, historic primary campaign that knocked off uh, incumbent Congressman Joe Crowley and rocked the Queen's Democratic Party machine. And more recently, Mumita has focused on bringing the political revolution to her corner of eastern Queens, where she's launched the Queens Mutual Aid Network to deliver groceries and medicine to neighbors in Jamaica, Queens. She's also the co-founder of Bangladeshi Americans for Political Progress, the first political club in the city for progressive Bangladeshis. Uh Uh, Mumita, who identifies as a Democratic Socialist, has been endorsed in her campaign by a slew of groups, including the Working Families Party, New York Communities for Change, Muslims for Progress, the Jewish Vote, Asian American Chamber of Commerce, and Sister Diaspora for Liberation. Mumita, thank you for joining us on the Independent News Hour this evening on 99.5 FM.
3: Thank you so much, John. And I have to say that listening to the national anthem i wasn't expecting it I, I i teared up a little bit so thank you for that um amazing introduction and thank you for playing uh tagore
0: sure uh g- gladly we were excited to to uh, track that music down earlier today so um uh, first of all before we talk a little bit about your campaign uh one thing that's interesting you have this special election that's coming up out in district 24 in Queens on February 2nd and you you and seven other people are running for that seat which uh became vacant last fall after the incumbent uh took a job in the Cuomo administration but this is going to be the very first election in New York City history that is going to be uh done by ranked choice voting uh can you explain a little bit what ranked choice voting is as well as the role you played in in um helping the the city make this transition
3: Yeah, um, it's, uh, you know, ranked choice voting is basically instead of voting for one person, you can rank your favorite, um, uh, you know, your favorite candidate, um, like your first choice, second choice, third choice, and you can rank up to five people. Um, This way, Whoever gets elected will be elected by a majority instead of, like, a small chunk of voters, which is what has been happening over the years, where you have 20 people running for a seat and somebody wins with only 10 percent of the votes. So that's not very democratic. So what happens with ranked choice voting is, like, if nobody reaches 51 percent of the votes um, in the first round uh, of counting, then... uh, Whoever gets the least amount of votes, those, that candidate will be eliminated. And the voters that voted for that candidate, um, those voters' second choice then comes into play and get distributed to you know whatever candidates they those voters picked as their second choice. And so eventually, and, and so you keep going doing these rounds until somebody gets 51 percent of the votes. It forces candidates to not just focus on their base voters or just the triple prime voters that are the voters that vote all the time, but to broaden their reach and to try to like reach out to communities that are often disenfranchised, often neglected by elected officials because you know they don't come out to vote maybe or they might not be as important to them, right? Um, uh, So, ranked choice voting changes that. The other thing that ranked choice voting does is allows communities like mine who don't have any representation to uh, run a candidate and that and and win because often we have multiple candidates from one community run and split the vote and so this is a way to keep sort of our votes together so it is a really you know, it's a really good thing. And we're proud that, uh, this is the first election where we're going to have race race voting. Um, and I was uh, really happy to be able to, um, help make sure that help pass it, not only help pass it, but make sure that, um, the, the lawsuits that was launched against it, that, uh, we were able to kind of intervene and, um, and, and like basically put put our thumb on the scale because uh, and and the judge um, saw that you know this election is something that our community is impacted by, and made the decision to not over, um, overturn. And the board of election, I mean, look, the board of election is going to screw up things no matter what. <laughs> you know, they we have are they they don't really do a good job with mail in ballots or our regular elections, right? So that's just an ongoing reform that we need to work on with the board of election, which has nothing to do with the, the voting process itself per se. It's really also leadership. Our board of election commissioners are chosen by party machine, party bosses. So we need to change that. So there, and we need to also pass the democratic packets that's up in Albany to expand voters rights, to make a same day registration, a thing to, um, Cement mail-in ballots as a forever thing that everybody can do, not just during a pandemic, but from going forward. Um, and, and things like, you know, automatic voter registration, things like that.
0: Right. Right. So, yeah. So ranked choice voting passed with 74% of the vote last year. And, and these lawsuits that recently cropped up were, um, uh, Dismissed by the the judge, and so, I mean, so I congratulate you and others who fought for ranked choice voting on achieving that and, and securing your victory. Now your your race in district twenty four is the first of many city council races we'll see this year. Of course, there'll be a full um, all, all fifty one seats are open, and and there'll be primaries in June. Your race is uh, happening earlier because of this special election. Ah, uh, can you talk a little bit about what the issues are out in uh, your corner of Queens that you you consider to be most urgent and that you would want to fight for on City Council?
3: Yeah. Um. So one a big issue is we're we're still in a pandemic, right? Um, and people are mostly uh, working class in my district, unable to safely quarantine or were unable to safely quarantine at the peak of the first phase and uh, many are because of that um, and many lost their jobs as well so um, because of that um, we have a huge uh, housing situation housing crisis here where people are um, uh, people haven't been able to pay rent for the last six seven months Um, so they're in debt and they're at risk of eviction um and we haven't and our restaurants and our um, small businesses are shutting down so it's really really imperative that we immediately bail out these families and that city council play a role in this instead of just being like oh sorry we don't have any jurisdiction um we have my former city council member um didn't provide equitable the discretionary funding that he received. He didn't distribute it equally to the communities that needed it and kept his door shut to, uh, the Latino community, the South Asian community, the African-American community, um, large, uh, working class people that live in this neighborhood. And so we really need, uh, so what we're fighting for is more equitable, um, distribution of the discretionary funds to, um, to help, you know, um, to help fund organizations that do work in this district um, with those communities, and also making sure that we find the money um, and generate the revenue to um, help families who still haven't gotten pandemic relief from the federal government or the state. And we have many families like that in our district. We know this because I was doing Queens Mutual Aid work um, uh, and and helping families with uh, groceries and medicine, and currently helping twelve families um, pay their rent. And you know what? It's not enough. Like we're all volunteers. If we and we're doing everything we can, City Council. Has money, has power. They can do something, um, and you know hasn't really done anything. And I, I think from every elected official, from not just state level and federal uh, elected officials, but even city level elected officials, need to get behind the tax the rich campaign.
0: Right, and um, so there there's eight candidates in this uh, special election race. Why do you believe you're the one who's uh, best suited to to take that seat.
3: I because I'm an organizer and I've always been an organizer. Um, and while everybody else was, I don't know what they were doing, I was at the heart of the movement, organizing whether it was for Bernie Sanders or for AOC or for or to pass ranked choice voting or to. Um, Fight for our our representation, uh, fight for our rights as um, immigrants to, you know, uh, run for office, to expand our democracy, to make it more transparent and accessible to working class people like me um, for the last seven, eight years. And I I basically spent all of my 20s just um, doing that work, being at the front lines, risking arrests, Um, working with elected officials, helping to elect good elected officials, um, shift the conversation, the narrative from what it was to what it is now, which is where we're actually asking for things like taxing the rich, asking for funding for working class folks, passing laws to protect workers, right? Um, to raise the minimum wage, all of those fights, I've been a part of it. I've had a role to play or I've, I've showed up. And I think that right now, more than any, anything, we need an organizer who knows when to show up, doesn't just show up because it's, uh, it's an opportune time to for them, for, for themselves, but because it's the right thing to do from day one, whether, whether others agree or not. Um, I've put myself out there, um, as, opposing um, you know know, I put myself out there supporting Bernie Sanders when nobody else did right because I believed in his message and his ideas I supported Occupy Wall Street I marched for Eric Garner I did all of those things when it wasn't like the mainstream cool thing to do right or like it wasn't the thing that everybody is doing and I I don't mean it to sound like I'm like the hipster of the movement I'm Say that I, for me, I have that moral compass that just clicks, that knows right away. My heart ha- is in the movement, right. So right. we need people like that,
0: right. And and you've you've been endorsed by uh, quite a, an array of groups: uh, the Working Families Party, New York Communities for Change, also the, I mean, the Asian American uh, Chamber of Commerce, uh, uh, Muslim Entrepreneurs. Uh, um, also the Jewish vote. Uh, Can you speak a little bit about how you've sort of been able to assemble this uh, broad uh, coalition of support? Uh, I mean, you you mentioned you've been on the front lines, but for someone who's uh, 30 years old and and, and facing, um, you know, a a crowded field, how how have you been able to break out like this and and get this kind of uh, support? Yeah,
3: um, by being an organizer. When I organize, I don't focus on, Ideology or labels. What I do is I talk about the issues, and I try to uh, meet people where they are. I don't, you know, I go to everybody, and even if um, they don't all agree with me, I still give them my best smile and best behavior, and I and I talk to folks, and I show up, and I um, try to listen as much as possible. And I think that is. Really important, and that's why I was able to get some of these endorsements that you wouldn't think I would be able to get, like uh, Asian American Chamber of Commerce, right? Like, are getting um, an uh, Muslim Entrepreneurs Association, which is actually um, uh, young people who grew up in our neighborhood. Uh, Some of them I went to high school with, um, that are like uh, that own uh, small businesses. They're doing. Um, They're helping people financially with, like, financial education, things like that, or they have their, like, little startups. Um, So I think it's partially because I grew up in the district and I have those community ties, right? So people know what kind of person I am. So it's not just um, my beliefs or my policies, but They've known me for a long time. They know that I'm a good, honest person. That I care about people. That I want what's best for people. Coupled with the fact that I have really good policies as well, and I'm not, and I'm, and I'm willing to listen to opposing uh, views without judging or without canceling, without um, dismissing people.
0: Right, and we're going to have to go here in a minute, but. Uh, before we do, can you kind of sketch out uh, what area your district covers? And then also for people, if they want to uh, get in touch with you or your campaign and find out more, uh, where where would they do that?
3: Yeah, so my district covers areas of Briarwood, um, Hillside Avenue, Jamaica Hills, Jamaica State, um, Pomona, Electchester, Flushing, Fresh Meadows, parts of Flushing, Fresh Meadows, Kew Gardens, Kew Gardens Hills. So it's a quite an array of uh, neighborhoods, um, and they can go to www.votesmomita, that is M-O-U-M-I-T-A dot com, um, to sign up to volunteer or contribute. And any dollars that they contribute to my campaign, if they're from the city, will be matched uh, times eight. So if they give me $10, I get $90. So that's the beauty of matching funds. I love it. It allows me to compete. Um especially because I'm not taking any money from real estate developers or police unions or the fossil fuel industry. Um, so I can work for, uh, our communities.
0: All righty. We'll have to leave it there, but, uh, Mumita Ahmed running for city council in district 24 in Queens. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on the independent news hour.
3: Thank you so much, John. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Likewise. All right. That just about wraps it up for our show tonight. Uh, um, real quick, if uh, you can support WBAI by giving uh, at 516-620-3602 or give number two WBAI.org. Many thanks to Amiga Gary and Olivia Reggio for helping with tonight's show. And we'll be back same time next week. And again, apologies for the technical difficulties we had earlier. Like a rat
1: in a cage, pulling minimum weight. who were bored once they'd run out of crime. New York, you're perfect. Oh, please don't change a thing.